First Peter chapter four, verses seven through eleven. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another, because love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without complaint. As each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Whoever speaks, let him speak as it were the utterances of God. Whoever serves, let him do so as by the strength which God supplies so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. I was talking with Noel this morning, trying to remember whether this text is the one that I have spoken on more than any other passage of Scripture in the last 14 years here at Bethlehem. It, it might be. I think it probably is. Um, I can remember preaching a, a sermon from verse 7 on prayer. I think it was during prayer week. Be sober and uh, wise unto your prayers. And I can remember uh, preaching a sermon on uh, during, it was in the fall, Jim, uh, probably two years ago on small groups just in the fall. We were trying to get people in the small groups on hospitality and showing hospitality without murmuring to each other. I can remember way back at the beginning, 13 years ago, 14 years ago, talking about the meaning of spiritual gifts using verses uh, 10 and 11. And I can remember one other, I can't remember when, uh, using today's title, which I'm scrapping, by the way, because I changed my mind as I was working on this sermon, uh, the title, uh, How to Serve God So That God Gets the Glory. So I've preached on this text four times, I believe. But now we're working through First Peter, and so here it is again. So as I was on the plane yesterday, I got on the plane um, 10 o'clock Friday night and got here about noon yesterday, I did my sermon on the airplane. So I was on the airplane, and uh, I said, Lord, I'm, I'm closer to you now up here. And there's something in this text that's fresh and new for Bethlehem that I haven't stressed. And, and you know where we are as a church. You know the stresses. You know the special needs. Those are the two questions I ask. What have I missed? What haven't I talked about? And what do we need? And I believe... He answered with uh, two points. So I've got two two points. The first one was, I have not, over these four sermons, talked about the first phrase in the text at any length at all. I've just kind of passed over it because it's sort of a problem, and I've never tackled it. Namely, uh, the end of all things is at hand. What does that mean? So I'm going to talk about that. That's going to take most of the message this morning. And then, in answer to the question, what do we need? What, what's sort of on the front burner at Bethlehem, given the stresses of, of recent months and the future of master planning and so on? Uh, have, I think the Lord showed me a connection between verses 
8 and 9 that I'll come back to in about 20 minutes and close with that was real precious to me, real special. I hope it feels to you as uh, pointed and relevant for us as it did to me when I got it up there in the airplane. So let's talk first about verse 7. The end of all things is at hand. He wrote this about 63, 4, 5 A.D. The end of all things is at hand. What does he mean by that? He mentioned a couple of possibilities. Did he mean, I know roughly when Jesus is coming, and I mean to teach that the end is at the door, and he was wrong. He's wrong. It's been 2,000 years, and he, he, he wasn't near. Here's a second possibility. Uh, he meant everything that needs to happen for the end to come, for Jesus to come and the Son of Man to appear on the clouds with power and great glory, everything that needs to happen has happened. Therefore, at any moment, he could come. And so he's near at the gate. The end is near or at hand in the sense that it's imminent. It's just any moment. I don't know. You don't know. But it could happen. A lot of interpreters take that position. Or is there a third possibility? I think there is. We'll see. We'll see. Now, with regard to that first one, there's a lot of people, a lot of scholars, a lot of interpreters, whose view of the Scriptures is not nearly as high as mine, as ours, as a body, we are a people who not only have a church covenant that we just read, we also have an affirmation of faith. Perhaps we should read that during our covenant affirmation times. But article number mm, two, one, I can't remember. I think it's one. Article number one is we believe as a church in the inspiration and the inerrancy of the Bible, that what the Bible teaches doesn't mislead you. It doesn't take you in wrong directions. And therefore, for those of us who have grown to trust the scriptures, that interpretation that he he said he's coming back a month, a couple of years, and he was wrong. That's real hard to take. You know, people come to trust the scriptures in a lot of different ways. I mean, let me just pause here and say something about this, because my guess is in a group this size with a lot of visitors and you're in different places in your trust level of the Bible I think most people come to trust the Bible and affirm its infallibility through coming to Jesus first. And as the Holy Spirit opens the heart to Jesus as he is revealed in Scripture and the values and the priorities of Jesus become ours and more and more Jesus becomes trustworthy and the portrait of Jesus becomes self-authenticating in the Bible, Jesus' view of the Bible becomes more and more ours and we grow in confidence in the Scriptures. I mean, if you're honest and you don't just believe it because your parents told you to, and you ask, why do I believe that the Bible is true? That probably is the way in the heart, most people are moved toward the embracing of the Word of God. There are a lot of arguments why we should embrace the Bible, but you know, experientially, most people don't come through a lot of sophisticated, historical, academic arguments. 
You come to Jesus, the lights go on. He's your only hope, your only savior. His teaching becomes everything to you. And he starts to say things about the Old Testament, about what he's going to do in inspiring his apostles in the New Testament. And gradually your trust level in the Bible grows until you begin to see, well, I guess this great old historic confidence of the church that it is the word of God inspired and therefore infallible is in fact true. And I, I think we should be patient with people as they're in process about that. That's what we stand for. Therefore, interpretation number one is very, very hard for us to believe. But, you know, it isn't just a kind of doctrinal thing. Well, it can't be true because it doesn't fit with our doctrine. It just historically is a problem to say that, that Peter predicted the soon return of Jesus and he was dead wrong and therefore we have to admit there are mistakes in the Bible. One of the historical problems is this. In in Acts chapter 1, Peter and the other apostles are there with Jesus and they say to Jesus, verse 6, is now the time for the end? Are you going to establish the kingdom now? And Jesus responds like this. And Peter heard this. He was there. It is not for you, Peter and the others, us, to know the times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority. You shall be my witnesses. In other words, instead of trying to worry about when I'm coming and when the kingdom is going to be established, get on with your work and be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Now, Peter heard that. And therefore, we give him the benefit of the doubt and say, well... If he heard that and he believed that, then he's going to be real hesitant to set any firm time parameters here because his isn't to know the times and the seasons. So there's a historical problem with just kind of jumping to the conclusion that he blew it and predicted the coming of the Lord within the next number of years and then he, he was wrong. Well, how should we decide what he meant then? Here's, my, here's the clue that I took and followed. In verse 7... It says, after the, uh, the, the end is at hand, it says, Therefore, be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. Now, when I read that, I said, I, I've heard this before. The connection between the end and earnest, vigilant prayer in view of the end. Where have I heard this before? And I've heard it from Jesus. So I'm going to invite you to turn to this chapter with me if you want to follow me. Luke 21. The Gospel of Luke, uh, chapter 21. I'll show you where I think Peter got this idea of connecting the nearness of the end with vigilant prayer to keep us from being swept away in the pressures and tensions of the last days. Uh, 21, verse 36. This whole chapter has to do with this, with the uh, signs leading up to the end. But he comes near the end of the chapter and he says, But keep on the alert at all times, praying in order that you may have strength. I don't think the NIV may be able. It gets it right. That's, it, it's, it is strength. The, the, the verb is not just be able to do something like we used to be able to, but have strength to do something. Might have strength to escape. All these things that are about to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. So what he's praying for is that as the pressures mount and the tensions are great and worldliness abounds and lawlessness multiplies, which we learn from the other places in the Gospels, it's going to be very easy to become drunk on the world. 
and blind to the signs of the times and not prepared at all for the Lord's return. And he wants us to escape that snare, says uh, in verse 34, that uh, the coming is going to be a trap, a trap for those who are weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and worries of this life. And that's why prayer is so urgent. You got dissipation, you got drunkenness, you got worries, you got these pleasures. And it's going to get hard at the end. That's the picture. It's going to get hard toward the end of this age to be a Christian. The stresses on the world are going to be great. And prayer becomes so urgent that we be vigilant, that we not be swept away in this dissipation and drunkenness and the worries and the cares of life so that we are blind to him when he comes and are not able to stand before the Son of Man. Now, Jesus and Peter both commend prayer as the end draws near. And so I'm inclined to think that the rest of what Jesus says here in this context is also probably going to be relevant for understanding how Peter understood the nearness of the end. So let's linger in this context for a minute in Luke 21. Back up with me to verse 6, and we'll just walk through it and look at a few places. Uh, Jesus says in verse 6, as they're walking out of the temple, he looks at the temple, he says, not one stone will be left upon another in this place. In other words, this temple that took 46 years to build, it's coming down. And that's one of the signs that God is moving. And that raises the whole question for them. Well, what are the signs when this is going to happen? If you want to talk about the end? Let's talk about the end. And Jesus talks about the end and the things leading up to the end. Let's look and see some of the things that he mentions. Look at verse 9. When you hear of wars and disturbances, do not be terrified, for these things must take place first, but the end does not follow immediately. Now, let's stop there and think about that for a minute. He says there's going to be wars and uh, rumors of wars, disturbances, but then he leaves this kind of indefinite gap. He says, but the end is not going to follow immediately. Now, that's significant because it's, it's just Jesus' way of saying, be careful here now. Don't think that when I give you a sign, you can say, oh, good. We got the sign, then we know, boom. You don't know. Okay, that, that's the point of that verse, I think. Here's a sign to make you alert and to make you vigilant, but don't draw the conclusion. Oh, I see. Immediately, there it is. He says, no, no, it's not going to be immediate. And I'm not telling you how long it's going to be. Or look at verses uh, 10 and 11, where he says again, he, he again refers to wars, rumors of wars, uh, earthquakes, famines, terrors, uh, cataclysmic signs in the sky or in space. And then in verse 12, he says something interesting about timing again. He says, but before all these, looking back on uh, famines and terrors and earthquakes and wars and so on, before all these things... They will lay hands on you and will persecute you. So now we've got three stages with some indefinite time in between. He's got, he said, before that, which is before the end, with this indefinite time connection, before that, you've got this time of persecution. So he says, there's three things so far. You, you, you disciples are coming into a time that's going to be really hard, a lot of persecution. And that happens before, verse 12, before these things happen. Famines, earthquakes, wars, and so on. And after that happens, the end is not yet. So you can see how kind of loose he's being here in 
keeping them from uh, date setting or drawing too firm conclusions that they could conclude when this end is going to happen. Then he adds a few more things. Look at verse 20. When you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then recognize that her desolation is at hand. And then drop down to verse 24 to see that again. 24 at the end of the verse. Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. Hmm. So Jerusalem is going to be destroyed. The temple is coming down, not one stone left on another. Jerusalem's going to be destroyed. And, and then there's going to be this time, times of the Gentiles. It doesn't say how long that's going to be. That's got to happen. Now, let's just step back from that for a minute, okay? We've seen the way Jesus talks about the end a little bit. Where's Peter in all this? Where's the end of all things is at hand? Could he mean everything has happened that needs to happen, and therefore what I mean is uh, the the coming is imminent. That's the word that's sometimes used, imminent. It's an any moment return possibility that Peter was expressing when he said, the end of all things is at hand, is at the door. I'm not talking time, I'm talking possibility that if the time were right, at any moment he could come. Now there's a big problem with that. I don't think that's what he meant. Because he wrote this letter in 65 A.D., or 63 or 64. He died in 65 AD or 66. He died under Nero. Everybody agrees on that. This is not a scholarly disagreement. Everybody agrees Peter died uh, under the persecution of Nero. That happened 65, 66 AD. Jerusalem was destroyed in 70 AD by the Romans. So five years later. So as Peter is writing... This prediction of Jesus that he had heard, verse 20 of Luke 21, hadn't happened yet. Jerusalem hadn't been destroyed. Uh, the times of the Gentiles trampling down Jerusalem, which is supposed to last some time after, the, that hadn't begun. And so Peter is either saying, well, uh, Jerusalem doesn't need to be destroyed, or Jesus can't come back any minute. And I don't think he thought he was coming back any minute because he did believe in these prophecies of Jesus. Now, he mentioned two other problems with, with that view, to saying Peter had that view. Matthew 24, 14, this gospel of the kingdom will be preached throughout all the world as a testimony to the nations, all the nations, and then the end will come. Then the end will come. Now, Peter's writing in 65. Has it come? I mean, has the Great Commission been finished? Has the gospel reached to all the nations of the world? And I don't think he thought it had. And there's another problem. John 21, 18. Jesus is talking to Peter after the resurrection, after Jesus' resurrection, and he says this. When you grow old, that's very significant. When you grow old, he's not old now, as a disciple, as things are getting started. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will gird you and bring you where you do not wish to go. And then John comments, by this Jesus predicted what kind of death he would glorify God with. 
And he, he's predicting his martyrdom. Peter, tradition tells us, was crucified upside down by Nero. In fact, he asked to be crucified upside down so that he wouldn't look exactly like Jesus when he was crucified. So Jesus says, when you get old, this is what's going to happen to you. So here's Peter writing this letter, and that hasn't happened yet. So I don't think Peter held the view that Jesus uh, was coming at any minute. I think he saw uh, the Great Commission. I think he saw the destruction of Jerusalem. I think he saw his own martyrdom as something that had to happen before the end would come and Jesus himself would come on clouds of glory and uh, establish his kingdom. So what then did he mean? Is there a third interpretation that would fit these words? And I let me try to just speak for Peter for a minute here. This is risky, but just put my interpretation in his words. Okay, this is what I think Peter would say. If he were standing here and we said, what did you mean by saying uh, the end of all things is at hand, at hand? I think he would say something like this. Um, in, intensifying persecution is all around us. Everywhere I look, there seems to be a readiness of a conflagration. And the Lord said there would be significant persecution. I see it all around me. I hear wars and rumors of wars. In fact, when I look at what's happening in Palestine with the kind of, of, of radical um, zealotry that's there and the attitude of the Romans and the, the, the movements of troops, I, I don't think it's going to be very long in Palestine before this cataclysmic destruction of the people of God and of the city of God until it happens. Not only that, the gospel is spreading like wildfire. Just consider Pentecost. 3,000 people, one day, bam! The church grows to 3,000 in one day. And then the Apostle Paul and the other apostles fanning out. And consider the first missionary journey that Paul had. In a matter of months, just months, the first missionary journey didn't last over a year. He had planted churches in Antioch and Derby and Lystra and Iconium. He had finished penetrating all the major cities of Galatia in a matter of months and was ready to move on in a new direction. Absolutely stunning. In fact, just a few months ago, Paul wrote, I mean, Paul was here in prison with me. I'm not sure where he is right now, but he let me read the, the copy of the Epistle of Romans that he wrote from Corinth. And in it, he wrote in chapter 15, which he wouldn't have said because they didn't have chapters back then. But he 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 said that he had completed the gospel from Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum, northern Italy. That's Jerusalem, Samaria, Judea, up through uh, uh, Syria and Asia Minor, up through and around in Greece and up into northern Italy. He's finished and he's going to Spain. Maybe he's in Spain already. I don't even know what's happened to him. If God keeps moving like that and adds to Paul, that's just one little missionary band, adds to Paul a hundred or a thousand or ten thousand other missionary bands in the next two or three years, this, this world is going to be evangelized before you die. Which was very feasible. 
was very feasible. Given what was happening in those days and the way God was blessing the church in those early days and the incredible spread of the gospel with signs and wonders and the power of the Holy Spirit, it was just phenomenal the way church planting was being done in those days. And so he says, now look, in view of how fast things are developing and how quickly Jerusalem could be destroyed, how quickly the Great Commission could be finished, how quickly I could be taken off the scene by martyrdom. Pray, pray, brothers and sisters, because everything is being put in place so that the Lord is at hand. That is, he could come at any moment because these things will be, not are, there's the difference between me and the second interpretation, will be very quickly put in place and he could stand forth without anything standing in between. I don't think Peter is thinking, I am now predicting the coming of the Lord, contrary to what the Lord taught me about not knowing the times and seasons. He's predicting how fast things were developing and in that sense, how near the end was in possible imminence. That's my guess and interpretation as to how Peter might have explained his own words. And this is the relevant part for us. I think that's exactly the way we should talk about the second coming now. It is not easy to know for sure what some of the signs of the end are. For example, has the Great Commission been finished? The problem there is, what did Jesus mean by this gospel will be preached as a testimony to all the nations? Is it major ethno-linguistic people groups, or is it little tiny linguistic groups? I asked them in Brazil, I said, how many tribes do you reckon are in Brazil who have absolutely no contact with the gospel yet? And one fellow said, probably 150. I said, how big are they? He said, some of them have 30 people and some a few thousand. They're not big. By and large. And one great tragic story. I just couldn't believe it. It just made me kind of furious at Satan. That 1982, this man, his name was um, Eduardo, riding in the car with me, couldn't speak English, and I was going through an interpreter, said he works with New Tribes Mission. He's Portuguese. I mean, he's Brazilian. And he said, in 1982, we reached the village. And I can't remember the name of the people group. I'm sorry. And, and they were friendly. They were open to us. And my wife and I lived with them until last year. And we learned the language and we began to understand their customs and we were ready to spread the whole gospel before them. And the government pressed a policy of, uh, I forget the name of it, but basically saying we want no penetration whatsoever with these primitive tribes. They are better left without any Western or outside influence, and they forced us out of the community after, what's that, 11 or 12 years. So does the completion of the Great Commission mean that little tribe has to be reached? And here, I just am not sure. And we don't need to be real sure. If you want to believe in an any-moment return of the Lord today, that he could come at any moment, you have to take the position that all the things are put in place now, I personally have a hard time with that. The man of sin and lawlessness, which Paul talked about in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. I don't see him on the scene. Um, 
and the, the completion of the Great Commission. Those two things that the New Testament predicts that will happen before the Lord descends in glory uh, seem to me not to have happened and could happen very quickly. We're having this big consultation in Seoul, Korea next May to strategize for how to finish the Great Commission in the next five years. Just to get it done. And so the Lord is at hand. We should talk that way. You know, as I was uh, in all these airports, this weighed on me tremendously, more than it ever has, that I looked at all those people in Sao Paulo Airport and all those people in Miami Airport and all those people in Chicago Airport and all those people in Minneapolis Airport, thousands and thousands of people just like ants in an anthill and up and down these elevators and everywhere. And I thought... Most of these people do not believe the end is near. In fact, most of these people don't believe that history is being guided by a sovereign God who has an end and will bring them into judgment or into salvation, depending on whether they've believed in Jesus. They don't know. And my heart ached for lost people more in the last 24 hours than it has for a long, long time as I contemplated the fact that, uh, look at them, just look at them. Just buying books and going everywhere and talking. Oblivious. They don't know what's going on. They don't know that the drama is almost over. And it just made me and made me want for us as a church to be so much more urgent than we are for the lost. Let me draw things to a close with this second observation that I said I got from verses 8 and 9 about where we are as a church. And it's, it was a real powerful word to me. And let me close with it. And I hope it is for you as we as we close. Verses 8 and 9 say, Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without complaint, that is, without Grumbling. Now, these verses are a description of how we should live together under the uh, stress of the last days. Pray is one thing. Live together in love and hospitality is another thing. The new thing that I saw in these verses was the connection between the two. Uh, in verse 8, uh, he says, At Bethlehem, I want you to have the kind of love now, and I'm going to pour it out on you if you'll receive it and trust me for it. The kind of love... That covers sins. Covers them. Covers sins in people that you see. See people around you that sin or have sin? It covers them. And then verse 9. Be hospitable without complaining. Remember when I preached on this a couple of years ago, I said, well, maybe it's complaining about having to dust before they come. You know? Or having to spend a little extra money to fix the soup or... And I think that's true. He doesn't want you to complain about that. But probably it's a little more than that. Probably it's... Do, do the hospitality thing. Get together and don't grumble about people that you have over or about other people that you don't have over. Don't grumble. Don't complain. Now put those two verses together. Verse 8 and verse 9. Verse 8 says, let there be such a love among you at Bethlehem that it covers a multitude of sins. And when you get together, uh, let love abound like that rather than verbally complaining or murmuring about the people that you're with or about others. Now, the reason that's so relevant for us is because uh, we've been through hard months, right? Everybody knows that. And what makes the months so hard is that... Uh, there are at least four possibilities. One, you're upset, still feel hurt and angry, 
at the discipline that was exercised about uh, toward Dean and Leah. The other possibility is you feel hurt, upset, angry at the way the elders were treated. Or the third possibility is you're not upset about either because you don't think either one was wrong. And the third or fourth possibility is you're upset about both because you think both were wrong. And there's gradations in between. So we've got lots of possibilities to complain, right? And to grumble. And to not cover but look at sins. So the word that I heard on the airplane as I was asking the Lord, what here needs to be stressed, was simply, this is amazing. This is just amazing what the Lord is saying here. Because on the one hand, I would like to think that genuine, authentic fellowship is preserved by confronting sin, repenting, uh, confessing, forgiving, and moving ahead. And that's the ideal. But this text says it just covers it. Now, we all know that's not talking about sweeping things under the rug. God knows we haven't swept things under the rug. We're not talking about hiding skeletons in the closet. May every door of every closet be open. God, God knows that you know that, that we're not talking about, well, if you're going to cover sin, you can't do any church discipline. And we're just, it's not talking about that. It seems to me what it's talking about is when you've done all the arguing, all the confronting, all the exhorting you can do, you cover it. You cover it. And you get together and you don't murmur. You don't grumble. You cover it. Now, that's a miracle. That has to be poured out by the Holy Spirit. And that's God's word, I think, to us. To, to stand side by side and say, obviously, from this text, if love covers sins instead of somehow doing away with them, and genuine, bona fide, authentic fellowship can be established on the covering of sins, then it's possible to go ahead without getting everything totally resolved about who's a bad guy and who's a good guy at Bethlehem. And I just want us to do that. I, uh, I want us to take up this master planning thing and go to verse 11 here. And say, this we agree on. This we'll start with. Let everything be done in such a way that God gets the glory through the precious mercy of Jesus Christ that bought every grace for us, to whom belong glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, I want to thank you so much for helping me be touched and convicted and helped by these words on the airplane yesterday. And my prayer as we end now is that you would just minister to wherever we are here, each person, and that an appropriate application of these words. We don't want to gloss over any sin. We want to confront, we want to confess, we want to repent of all known sin. But, Lord, this text seems to say there's something about covering it. We've got to do that as husbands and wives with each other. We've got to do it with our children. And we need to do it as a church. And I just pray that you take us forward in this wonderful gift, this wonderful blessing that Peter describes here. It is a work of the Holy Spirit. And so, Holy Spirit, I just invite you to come as we close and to minister and 
And as people come to the prayer teams and seek prayer about various things, would you touch them and grant the gifts that are necessary to meet their needs? In Jesus' name I pray. And all the people said, Amen.